Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning. Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. All right, let's pray together. Father God, because of Jesus Christ, we have hope. God, even in the uncertainty and the chaos of life, we know that this world is not our home. That because of Christ Jesus who took on flesh and walked among us and ultimately laid his life down for us, because of him we have an eternal promise, an eternal home. God, we know that every tear will be wiped away, that sickness and pain and death will be no more. So God, we ask that while we eagerly await your return, that we would live your kingdom, your kingdom reality that Christ ushered in. God, that we would look to him and follow him as we lay our lives down so that the world might see Christ through us to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Yeah, that's better. You're here. It's wet out, but it's going to be great tomorrow. So enjoy hanging out inside with your family. Um, We're going to spend a lot of time, not a lot of time. You know, I preached 30 minutes or less, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Philippians chapter 2. But before that, just wanted to read back through Luke 2, just verses 10 and 11. Greg read it earlier. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And I love these verses. We obviously always read them on Christmas, and John preached on these verses last week. But it's just such a crazy story, isn't it? It's hard with our modern minds to really comprehend these shepherds' angelic encounter, the angelic proclamation, in a place where the only sources of light at night are the moon and the stars and maybe a fire that you built. Shining angels arrived by night to these shepherds out of of the middle of nowhere, or out of heaven, I suppose. Not only that, they came bearing the greatest news that the world had ever heard. The centuries of waiting, the anticipation, the longing, and, and at times the hopelessness, it was all over. The Savior was here. The Messiah had arrived. And if that wasn't crazy enough, after this proclamation, a multitude of heavenly hosts, right, an angelic army bursts out into worship. That's a pretty crazy night for these guys, right? Have you ever thought about, like, what they did 
afterwards, right? What the conversation was like. I mean, Luke tells us they look at each other and say, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened. I mean, I believe that, but I have to believe there were a few more words spoken, right? Like, did that just happen? Are you serious? So these angels depart, and it's pitch black again, right? They're in the middle of nowhere. Maybe they had a fire, but can you imagine just working-class men sitting around a fire, just told the most amazing possible news, sung over by a multitude of angels, and then they're gone? It's crazy. It's just always struck me when you think about that experience for those guys. But another thing that's interesting, there's this theme that weaves throughout Scripture. It's about who God chose to use, who God chose to visit. It's, it's not often who you would expect. Shepherds? Really? God used shepherds and fishermen and tax collectors and lawyers and women in a culture, in a time where you just didn't do that. But then that's kind of how God works. Even Jesus himself, this long-awaited Savior and King, proclaimed by angels to these shepherds, was not the kind of Savior or King that anyone expected. By worldly standards, he was a disappointment. He didn't bring an army. He didn't overthrow any governments. He didn't wield his power to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish an eternal kingdom, an entirely new kind of kingdom and community and power that is opposite in every way to the kingdoms and the powers of this world. He came as a baby on that starry night to save us and to invite us into this kingdom. And the way that he came and he lived and he died paints for us a vivid image of what this kingdom we've been invited into looks like. So, I want to look at Jesus this morning. Shocking, right? We're going to talk about Jesus. And I want to zero in on three simple points. How he came, how he lived, and how he saved. And the title of this sermon I was really excited about. It is The Condescending Savior. For real, that's the title. But don't feel bad if your first reaction is, what's wrong with you, pastor? I get that. I told someone a few weeks ago what the title was gonna be. They were sitting on the porch and they said something along the lines of, that sounds like a really depressing Christmas sermon. And I said, thank you, thank you. But we have to remember that everything about God's kingdom turns the kingdom of this world on its head. Because if you look up the word condescension, the first definition that comes up, the primary definition, is an attitude of patronizing superiority or disdain. Kind of what we'd expect, right? Don't be so condescending. We say that when we feel like someone is acting superior or judging or looking down upon you. But here's the interesting thing about etymology, big word for the study of words and their meanings. The meaning of a word is defined by its usage over time. 
And so this word finds its roots back in the 14th century in Latin. And from the 14th century to the late 18th century, there was only one meaning and understanding of the word condescension. And it wasn't patronizing superiority. It was a word that described a king or a god making gracious allowance for human frailty or to come down from one's rights or claims. That's condescension. To make gracious allowance for human frailty or to come down from one's rights or claims. So it sounds like a Christmas word to me. But over time, this word has been twisted and is now a word used to describe someone with power or position looking down on those lower than them with disdain. But when Jesus condescended, he didn't just look down, right? He came down. He lowered himself with gracious allowance for human frailty. He set aside his rights and claims, his power and glory with the Father to bring salvation from sin and death. And this idea of condescension, having trouble saying words, had a flashback to the Tower of Babel, so I had to stop. This idea of condescension isn't something that we're just to look at and marvel at in Jesus. We need to do that. We need to look at Jesus and worship him for who he is, for his glorious love and humility, but Jesus didn't call us to just look at him. He didn't call us to just talk about him. And marvel at him. He said, believe and follow me. He said, follow. The way he came and the way he lived and the way he died were modeling for us the characteristics of his kingdom. The kingdom we now represent here on earth. And everything about Jesus' life was condescension. It was downward mobility an active lowering of himself for the good of others, an active pouring out of his life so that others might experience true life and joy. And he's called us to live this same way. His spirit in us compels us to live in this way. It is a life of, of humility. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. The way forward is backwards. The way to success, success is faithfulness in the slow and mundane reality of life. And sometimes through divinely appointed setbacks, which will always look like failure in the eyes of the world. But this is the way of Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised that this type of humility that Jesus modeled and he called us into, it always requires sacrifice. And so, like I said, I want to look at three aspects of Jesus' life briefly this morning, how he came, how he lived, and how he saved. And we've already hit on how he came. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 says, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant 
being born in the likeness of men. This is our Christmas joy. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings emptied himself. He laid aside the power and the honor and he took on flesh. He came down from his rights and his claims to be born as a man and walk among us. And in Philippians 2, right before that text, Paul calls us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, to count others more significant than yourselves, and to look to the interests of others. And then he points to Jesus. He says, look at Jesus He is our example and our power. Walk like Jesus because Paul says this mind is already in you. It's already yours in Christ. It is the gift of the Spirit in you to humble yourself, to consider others more significant than yourself. And to walk in this kind of humility, it's supernatural. But as we know, this is not the way of the world. It's, it's a verse to our own flesh. We live in such a pride-driven culture. Everyone trying to elevate their position of power, of influence, striving to get to a place where they can look down all over all of those below them, to have enough power or money or clout to avoid having to serve anyone. But in the condescending love of Jesus, he used all of his power to crawl into the trenches of life with us and for us and ultimately to save us. Jesus lowered himself to be with us, but that's not all. He he also lowered himself among us. That's how he lived. And there's no greater picture of this than when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, right? The Savior, the teacher, literally lowered himself to the lowest social rung possible and washed their dirty feet. Even the feet of Judas, the man who would soon betray him. And right after that, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Hmm. So if you're wondering, what does Jesus want from me? What does Jesus want? Or if you're wondering, what's God's will for your life? Jesus is pretty clear right here. I think this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus explicitly says, I'm giving you an example, now you do the same thing. So it seems important. And Jesus wasn't just talking about the act of washing feet, but everything that this action symbolizes. Jesus was calling them and calling us to be a feet-washing people, a people with feet-washing hearts. Don't be a people who look down upon others in judgment and bitterness, striving to outdo one another in self-glorification, but be a people who actively lower themselves in love, who outdo one another in showing honor. And that's not easy. Everything in our flesh wants to be lifted up, to be praised and honored, 
but our Savior showed us the way of his kingdom. Jesus has called us to a fullness of joy. And the path to this joy, Jesus said, is by taking up our cross and following him. To follow his example of humility and sacrifice. And this call, Jesus' call on our life is diametrically opposed to our castle building culture. To seeking power to create separation from those around us. To building bigger walls and isolating ourselves from the less desirable or the less important He has called us to open our hearts and our homes, to open our lives up and welcome people into the imperfect reality of them. In a world of unending distractions and entertainment and busyness, Jesus showed us what it looks like to be fully present with people, to be present to see beyond external appearances, to actually see people as image bearers of God, to see beyond their perceived needs or perceived problems to their true eternal need. And Jesus cared deeply for them, fully present with them in their humanity. This is what I call hospitality. It's hospitality. It's not just feeding people or entertaining people. It is inviting them into your life, giving them space in your heart and in your mind. Hospitality is offering your presence, which makes Jesus the most hospitable person to ever walk the earth. And the religious elite scorned Jesus for his hospitality. Did you ever think about that? They despised him because he welcomed sinners and tax collectors to the table. Because he was present with the unclean lepers and cripples and women and Gentiles. He invited people into his presence whom society had deemed as less. And they hated him for it. And Jesus has called us to follow him in this way to open our hearts, to open our lives, to open our homes. It is an active lowering, an active sacrifice of inviting and welcoming people in. And as we said earlier, this type of humility and love, it comes at a cost. It is inconvenient. It is hard. It will stretch you but it will also resound with the love of Jesus. I think most of you know that our home and our property is a revolving door of people. All day, every day, there are people coming and going, and we love it most of the time. And there are five, at least five families, most of whom are in this room, who have actually lived with us for months. One family, three times. And I know several, several of you in this room know that having people living in your home can be challenging at times. It messes with your rhythms. It messes with your privacy. Sometimes kids sit in my recliner and they're not even my kids. But there's, just, there's kids running everywhere. It's crazy sometimes. 
It is. But I can say that the friendships we've forged through these times, the way we've been able to love and care for people, and the way we've been loved and cared for by the people living in our home is priceless. We have forged lifetime friendships with these families through the struggles and the joys of living together. And we wouldn't change that for anything. And a pretty regular question that I get whenever we have another family move in, um, they say, how can you do that? How can you do that? And I've always had this answer in the back of my head that I've never spoken because it might not come out right. But what I want to say is, how can you not? That's what I want to say. How can you not? How can we look at Jesus and not joyfully inconvenience ourselves to serve others? How can we not? And listen, most people don't have a house set up like ours that works for having people live in your home. That's not the point. The point is following Jesus in the sacrifice of hospitality. In welcoming people into your hearts and your homes, even when it's costly. And you guys are awesome at this. Like right? the Nichols are fostering, the Childs adopted, the Himbergers and Leones open their houses all the time, and so many more of you do. And countless people in this room who just invite people in for coffee or tea or meals, who show up at other people's homes with meals or gifts or washing clothes or just a listening ear. These things are such powerful examples of the love of Christ at work in this community. And it's what we've been called to. This call to selfless hospitality and love is both simple and it is so clear in Scripture. Romans 15 says, We who are strong, so, right, you think you're strong, this is for you. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's pretty clear. And why on earth should we do that? Keep reading. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For, who, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You see, the truth of the gospel sets us free to love. The pressure is off. There's no one to impress, only people with whom we have been called to share the love of Jesus. And the call of Jesus is to be a welcoming people, to be a people of gracious hospitality, to be present with people in the struggles of this life, to be servants of all. 
And the beauty of the kingdom that God is building, this new kind of community, is that if everyone is serving one another, then everyone is being served, right? That's how it's supposed to work. If everyone is serving others, then we are all being served. We are drawing people into, we're discipling people into an other-centered life, a life modeled by Jesus, a mind and heart that is now ours through him. Jesus welcomed you. So he lowered himself to be with us. He lowered himself among us. And finally, he lowered himself unto death. That's how he saved. C.S. Lewis once said, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And Christmas morning is good news because God didn't just look down. He came down. He came down and dwelt among us, serving and loving and modeling the characteristics of his kingdom. And he laid down his life to secure for us a place as sons and daughters of the living God. That is through his humility and his sacrifice, we have been brought from death to life, filled with the Holy Spirit who is our seal of all that God has promised. Ephesians 1 says this, that when we believed, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We were sealed. And that spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So while we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas morning, we must never lose sight of the reality that Jesus came on that starry night to lay down his life for his people. Jesus came to turn things right side up in an upside down world. He is the savior and the king who loved his people so much that he didn't do what they wanted. He didn't act how they wanted and he didn't give them what they wanted. But he came to give us what we needed so that we might have life and have it abundantly. He laid down his life so that ours might be lifted up. So back in Philippians 2, Paul goes on to say, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The condescension of Jesus is the greatest gift that we could have ever received. That baby born in a manger came to love and serve and ultimately lay down his life so that we might have unspeakable joy. And as Jesus says in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And these very words that Jesus proclaimed, he also modeled in his life. And it is fitting that he who humbled himself more than any other human being on earth would be exalted more than any who would ever live. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From unthinkable humility to unimaginable glory. So my prayer for us all this Christmas season is that when we think about Jesus born in a manger, that we remember how he came and how he lived and how he saved. He lowered himself to be with us. He lowered himself among us and he lowered himself unto death. And he said, follow me. And my prayer is that we would do that. So let me close out with encouraging words from the Apostle Paul from Ephesians chapter 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father God, as we prepare for a lot of gifts over the next few days, I pray that we would not lose sight of the greatest gift that you sent your son to purchase our redemption. As we just read, by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is a gift from you. God, it's a simple truth that changes everything. We have been bought with a price, and the call on our lives is to honor you in our bodies. And that's our prayer this morning. That with one eye fixed on Jesus, or with our eyes fixed on Jesus, with our hearts secure in his love, that we would follow him as we long for the day of his return. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamlin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.